0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Stuart Gray Sarbaker, who's Associate Professor at the School of History, Philosophy, and Religion at Oregon State University. Hello, Stuart, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Raj. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. We had the good fortune of, of, of interacting not so long ago. Um, you gave a talk at uh, the OCHS uh, Online Weekend School um, on Yoga, yes,
0: That's right, yeah. The Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, yeah. And it was uh, quite a treat actually to be part of that program, which I thought was quite edifying. I've been working my way through the uh, uh, recordings of the other speakers over the past couple of weeks. It was a really great program.
1: I will put a link to your talk in the program uh, in the description in the notes for this podcast but it was so interesting this podcast is so related to that online weekend school I was asked you know a little bit last minute if I would put one together for December this was maybe with three weeks notice type thing three four weeks there was just a bit of reshuffling and and they asked if I would be able to do it and I said sure and then I thought you know let me let me network through the podcast and I realized that they've just been I knew I wanted to do it on yoga that I just kind of knew Um, and I didn't occur to me that there were like 10 brand new yoga books in the last year just on this podcast. I thought, wow, what a what a burgeoning field of study, right? Mm. Um, speaking of, we should get to the topic of this podcast, which is your uh, fascinating, fantastic new book, Tracing the Path of Yoga, The History and Philosophy of Indian Mind-Body-Discipline brand spanking you uh officially to be out tomorrow now in the timeless time of podcast worlds um this may have a little bearing but we are currently as i speak um in the eastern time zone at least we are um on the 31st of december the last day of 2020 uh the eve of a new world a new year but also january 1st happens to be the publication date officially for your book so very timely yeah thank you so Tell us, um, how did you get down the path of writing this book? What's the genesis of this project?
0: Yeah, thanks, Raj. You know, I think there are a number of factors involved. One was a long-standing <laughs> abiding interest that I had personally in the history and philosophy of yoga, and especially as a scholar of yoga studies, getting the big picture, so to speak. And... Um, I was inspired in my own graduate research by the classic work by Mircea Eliade, Yoga, Immortality, and Freedom, as well as works by David Gordon White, um, and perhaps more recently, Jeffrey Samuel. And I've always had an affinity for these kind of bigger picture presentations of the history and philosophy of yoga. One of the, so one part of that inspiration then is a kind of personal academic kind of interest in the topic. Um, Another part of it though, has been teaching the subject to students and often struggling to kind of cobble together a variety of sources to really cover the, the narrative arc of the history of yoga and to some extent Tantra in a kind of cohesive way. And um, as you're well aware, Eliade's book is really, you know, dated in many respects. It also doesn't really even address the whole issue of modern yoga. It it sort of stops at the pre-modern era as if the complete story has been told. And really, there's been a whole generation of scholarship that's opened the door to a lot of different other very important facets of both you know, pre-modern and modern yoga. And so, you know, part of it came out of my desire to really master this field of, uh, or topic, but part of it also came out of a kind of pedagogical need to have a kind of cohesive narrative to offer to students that would introduce them to the history and philosophy, and along the way, bring them into some of the theoretical conversations within Hindu studies and
1: religious studies more broadly. It's fascinating. um, this obviously is a topic that's of personal interest to you. You don't mind me asking, do you also practice? Is it part of your, your personal life in some way?
0: Yeah, I, I do. And, you know, I consider myself a scholar practitioner of yoga. Um, I'm a registered yoga teacher with the Yoga Alliance. And I actually teach a course at Oregon State University called Theory and Practice of Modern Yoga, which looks at the history of of modern yoga really late 19th century forward through both historical and anthropological sources, as well as through the lens of different practitioner representations of yoga. And in the class, we spend half of the time in the traditional classroom and half of the time in a yoga studio, uh, experimenting with the practices of yoga. So for example, we have one session which is dedicated to the sun salutation or Surya namaskar. And we look at the the modern history of the Sriya Namaskar as a component of yoga. And then we go next door into the yoga studio and we practice the sun salutation and reflect on the relationship between the historical sources, the practitioner representations, and what it feels like to practice that in an embodied way. So it's both a part of my own life in terms of my own practice of Yoga and meditation, but also it's something I actively teach as well.
1: My most favorite analogy for straddling those two uh, intimately related worlds of practice and theory is, is sort of looking at music theory and music history in one room and then, you know, jamming in the next room if one <laughs> if one is not tone deaf. <laughs> that's
0: a that's a great analogy, I think. And and I will say this that my experience out with practitioners in communities out in the world has impacted in very profound ways the way that I think about yoga as a scholar. Among other things, it's given me much deeper insights in some respects into the kind of social and cultural aspect of yoga, you know, yoga as being something that's transmitted through living communities. And likewise, as a practitioner, my scholarly work has definitely informed the way that I go about my own practice, how I understand and, and interpret what I see out in the world. And I should say with this particular book, you know, I'm really trying to cast a, a bit of a wide net here, both you know, as a resource for scholars who want to kind of go deeper into the, the literature and history of yoga But also for practitioners, because I think, if you know, a good read through this book, I think will would open a person's eyes to a variety of elements of yoga that might not be apparent immediately, that might attune people in ways to their own practice, and also the communities in which those practices are situated so I would, I hope that it, it will be something appealing to readers across that spectrum.
1: Tell us about the structure of the book in terms of the chapters and the the sort of chronological layers of of the discussion.
0: The book itself is really structured to create a kind of historical arc, but that being said, you know, I really tried to set the stage early on by introducing a number of the kind of key concepts that emerge within the context of the larger arc of yoga practice. In fact, you know, one of the things I say early on is, you know, if a person's really looking primarily to understand modern yoga, maybe read that first chapter, which is all about defining yoga, and then read the last chapter, which is about modern and contemporary practices of yoga. Those two together, I think, would give a basic literacy as to the story of modern yoga traditions within a larger kind of historical context. But really, the the kind of core of the book is going from the earliest sort of stages of yoga's development, um, what I refer to as proto-yoga, and theories about where the building blocks of yoga emerge in Indian history, particularly in the Indus civilization and in the Vedic traditions. And then really follows an arc that extends through uh, primarily Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism over the course of the early centuries BCE through the classical, medieval, and then modern eras. So, you know, it's it really is a kind of a big picture take. And along the way, I tried to kind of prov- provide a kind of historical, cultural, political, and even economic snapshot of what's happening at each of these different phases of yoga's history, so that it isn't just sort of the practices out there without any sort of context, but you understand that they're part of a kind of Transforming Indic society.
1: In terms of Chapter Two, uh, the, the, the 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 building blocks, as it were, um, in terms of uh, Indus Valley civilization elements, and the Vedic tradition. Uh, why don't you share some of those building blocks with us? What are you looking at there?
0: Well, primarily in in referring to what I call proto yoga, in part because you know they're the explicit references to yoga, especially as a discipline, and that's really what I'm looking at yoga primarily through the rubric of a kind of mind-body discipline, you know, appears probably not until the 5th or 6th century BCE, but a lot has happened before that in terms of, you know, the the Vedic tradition and the Indus civilization, and one of the things I get into is how, you know, if we look at the Indus civilization, you know, roughly 2500 BCE, as the kind of foundational strata of Indian civilization, there's quite a few theories about some of the archeological evidence there. In particular, a stetite um, or soapstone seal that bears an image that kind of looks like someone seated in a meditative position um, that's been often claimed as a, as a yogi, or either a proto-yogi or even a proto-Shiva. And, um, you know, my argument in the text is it's intriguing, but we have no literary evidence to back that up. We have no uh, other sort of data to, to support that theory. And that we're probably better off looking primarily to the Vedic materials for you know more substantive conclusive ideas about the history of yoga and i will say this one of the things that came out of doing this research for me personally was a much more profound sense of how how many of the building blocks of yoga are already present within the vedic tradition and vedic civilization you know and one example of that is i really came to the conclusion over the course of writing the book that mantra in particular, has been a thread that has been extremely important throughout the history of yoga, whether in the Hindu, Buddhist, or Jain tradition. Um, in some cases, it's perhaps not as apparent as other contexts, but nonetheless, it's it's a thread that really runs through the history of yoga. Other disciplines like breath control or pranayama you know, are an important part of the Vedic corpus, as well as various forms of tapas or ascetic practice. So you know many of the building blocks are clearly there and we don't really have to speculate as much as we can just sort of see them transparently there. Another really important thing that you know I, that I've really sort of drawn from this research is that though some scholars will argue that yoga officially appears much later in this sort of post-vedic period in part because they point to the Buddhist and Jain emphasis on on, uh, cyclic existence, on liberating insight, and that type of thing. But in my opinion, that's just one part of a bigger puzzle. And one of the key pieces is um, what I call the numinous dimension of yoga, yoga as uh, self-disciplining that leads to extraordinary capacities, um, which is to some extent, really clearly evident in some of the Vedic passages, as well as the Vedic commentary literature. So you can really look to that pre-Buddhist and Jain, and even to some extent, Upanishadic period to see many of the building blocks of the sorts of visionary experiences that come to characterize yoga in the early period and in the classical era. So There's a lot going on there. And I would say doing this work has really convinced me much more than I was before that we really need to look at the Vedic tradition if we want to get at the roots of the phenomenon we come to
1: understand as yoga. So give us an example of the passage or passage that you look at uh, as evidence uh, um, for this numinous experience you refer to.
0: Yeah, so one of the, in the Vedic context, one of the classic examples is, um, you know, Rig Veda 10.136, the so-called Kishan hymn, which, um, you know, provides images of this long-haired muni or ascetic who um, drinks some sort of agent or visha, flies amongst the gods, and there's hints of other powers such as mind reading, in many respects, giving us a kind of snapshot image of a transformed ascetic practitioner who's achieving divine powers. And by by numinous, in part, I'm referring to the idea of becoming a numen, becoming like a spirit. You know, the boundary between the human and the divine becoming fluid and humans taking on the attributes that are typically associated with gods and goddesses. And this is just a, a really critical part of the practice of yoga Throughout its history, when we start to see the formal yoga systems, one of the things we see is this idea that when you discipline your mind and body, you become very powerful. You become like the beings who exist in these higher cosmological realms. Likewise, there's a passage in the Atarva Veda about about the Brahmacharan, the the person who practices kind of the idealized self-restraint of Vedic disciplehood, become charged with this sort of extraordinary power. And you could say, well, in either case, maybe there's some degree of hyperbole going on um, as a sort of, you know, way of accentuating perhaps the nobility and virtues of those stations. At the same time, the literature of yoga is, is throughout its history filled with examples of these sorts of extraordinary capacities that come out of ascetic and yogic discipline.
1: Would you say that yoga um, ultimately hails from Indian asceticism?
0: Well, I think they're, they're intimately tied together. And one way of thinking about it, or one way I've found useful to think about it is in some contexts yoga and tapas are virtually identical. So in some of the different literary contexts, and I think in the contemporary context as well, yoga and tapas become kind of interchangeable uh, terms for self-discipline. And, and in principle, the idea that when you discipline your mind and your body, you become very powerful, but that power is sort of ambiguous. And of course, we have in famous Hindu narratives, such as Ravana, the, the villain of the Ramayana, who obtains extraordinary power and vulnerability um, through his own efforts of tapas. And it sort of gets at the moral ambivalence of tapas. And there are other examples of that, of individuals who, for not so savory reasons, discipline their minds and bodies and become very powerful, almost overwhelmingly powerful. And in that sense, yoga as just a simple disciplining of the self that yields these powers or capacities, I think is a kind of baseline common kind of way of thinking about it. But once we hit the kind of early to full on classical era, we see tapas asceticism being kind of subsumed within the rubric of yoga as one element among many others. So, if famously in the Patanjala yoga system, in the Ashtanga yoga, tapas is one of the factors of Niyama. Um, so it's one of the observances that the yoga practitioner performs, and there it's associated with, among other things, um, self dis- forms of self-discipline, like fasting in particular. So I think there are two ways, at least, to look at this. One is to sort of look at tapas and yoga as both terms that relate to self-discipline, but then, as the more systemic traditions of yoga developed, tapas is sort of subsumed within yoga in yoga's more systematic formulation.
1: What would you say is the relationship? Right? Complex question, more generative than, uh, more generative than conclusive. Uh, in terms of a response but uh, the relationship between yoga and tantra particularly with respect to your observation uh, of, the, of the of the prevalence of of, of mantric uh, recitation throughout the history of yoga how would you describe the relationship
0: yeah I, th- I think they're intimately connected in a number of ways and one of the one of I think the most prominent, sort of connections that I make early on in the book that I think is something I return to on numerous occasions is if you know we look at yoga first as a kind of disciplining of the mind and the body, you know, that arises out of this Indic religious context and in, you know, in particular out of the Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain context, that then becomes both synonymous with a goal of practice as well as different methods of practice that lead to either these extraordinary accomplishments, you know, mastery over one's embodiment or worldly experience, as well as mastery over um, the, the process of birth and rebirth, what I call these numinous and cessative goals, either obtaining power in the world or a kind of freedom or liberation from attachment and aversion and other forces that bind us. To the world tantra is a is a, a way of accelerating the process of spiritual development through extraordinary means and so tantra both in many cases embraces yogic practices you know for example um yogic disciplines of the subtle body of mantra practice of uh U- utilizing pranayama and other techniques to manage one sort of energetic inner life in order to accelerate the process of spiritual development. I think they're sort of intimately connected together. And much like yoga, tantra has a kind of ambivalence within it in terms of the power that one obtains through the practice of tantra might either mean transfiguration or transformation into a kind of deity-like being, or it can lend towards this idea of liberation. And I think in the tantric context, often the two are wedded together, and you have these ideas of jivanmukti, mukti, of liberation in life, where you both possess these sorts of extraordinary powers, and you're free from bondage to the process of birth and rebirth. Um, you know, one of the theories I sort of press a bit in the text, which is, you know, perhaps a bit speculative, but I find quite intriguing, is the idea that Tantra may have emerged out of a kind of interface between the kind of yogic and tantric practices that you see develop in particularly the Hindu tradition and female possession ritualist traditions where women were possessed by goddesses and that there's a kind of interface between those two things. And what you find, I think, over time is both yogic methods being integrated within tantric paradigms, but also certain tantric methods being integrated into yogic paradigms as well. So there's a kind of fluidity between the boundaries of yoga and tantra, I think, especially as you get to the medieval era, where, that, where in many cases that boundary is very, and if it, if it exists at all.
1: The interplay of what you speak um, really reinforces, to my mind, um, my, one of my two favorite metaphors for what we call Hinduism. Um the first is a jungle which we need not get into now but the second is a tapestry and i think of it as having these these five key strands or patterns and, and one of those patterns is tantric one is vedic etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and really it's it's like any beautiful piece of art you may be able to discern the elements but they, the interplay is it's more than the sum of its parts and it, it really becomes difficult to separate out what's Vedic, what's Tantric, what's Yogic, what's uh, Puranic, Etc. Etc. et cetera. Et cetera. Um, um, and also, um, when you talk about, in your book, the um, bifurcation between, uh, how do you phrase it? Uh, cessation and numinosity, correct?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I can't help but think of uh, the Devi Mahatmya cultivating, <laughs> my brain is not working today, I need more sleep, Cultiv- uh, culminating, <laughs> <laughs> or more coffee. The Devi Mahatmya culminates in this dual boon. The Devi uh, speaks out of both sides of her mouth, as it were, to, to, to give um, moksha, liberation, cessation in your language to the merchant. And um, um, Kingship, sovereignty, power over the world to the king, and, and, and this ambivalence—it's it's 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 profound and it's, it's intriguing. You see this at every turn in in in, in Hinduism and certainly in the discourse of yoga. Uh, speaking of narratives of the goddess and such, what do you what do you find in terms of um, yoga in the epics and Puranas?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, you know, I since I. Was going to be talking to you, Raj, I made sure I, you know, thought through this a bit knowing about your sort of deep work on the piranhas, and I perhaps should tread a bit carefully,
1: but... For the, before- for the record, I turn off the specialist brain when I do these interviews for the most part. <laughs> Please proceed uh, assured that you're, you'll be fine.
0: <laughs> so there are a couple of things, um, you know, that really stand out to me about the piranhas and with respect to yoga. And one of them is just simply that for all of the academic and popular interest in yoga, very little attention has in fact been paid to the Puranas, despite, as I think you'll agree with me, it being one of the most important bodies of narrative and didactic literature in the Hindu tradition, or in other words, telling stories and teaching people how to practice Hinduism. Would 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 you agree? Without,
1: I with uh, I would say, in my personal view, without question.
0: Well, I'm glad. Emphatically agree so. Agree on that. <laughs> so, there are really two key points that I you know I'm at least implicitly making about the pranic narratives of yoga and and pranic teachings of, about yoga in in the in the book here. And one of them is that in this extremely important body of Hindu literature, which is, you know, what I think one should go to to really get a sense of, you know, the kind of core of Hindu narrative practice, theology, and so forth. One of the things you see is that the gods themselves are portrayed in many cases as practitioners of yoga, as embodiments of yoga and is wielding the power or yoga bala of yoga. And I think it's, it points to the ways in which yoga has been very much a critical component of the mainstream of Hindu narrative and, and practice. Shiva, for example, uh, is referred to as Yogishvara. And likewise, in the epics you see Vishnu referred to in that language as well as as masters or lords of yoga. Um, In the Shiva Purana, Devi is referred to as as a kind of patron of yoga practitioners. Um, And in in some cases, Shiva, for example, is portrayed in the kind of iconography of a yogin or ascetic. In the Shiva Purana, the there's profoundly effusive language uh, about the nature of Shiva as a yogin, as a practitioner of yoga, as a master of yoga, with innumerable epithets or, or uh, sort of na- special names given to Shiva that reflect his mastery of yogic practices. And so um, if one is sort of wondering, well, you know, how important is yoga in the context of, you know, Hindu narrative literature and the representations of Hindu gods and goddesses, in the Puranas, one of the things you see is it, it's, it's critical. It becomes woven into the very fabric of how God or the goddess is to be understood. The second point that I'm, again, you know, at least implicitly, if not explicitly making is that the didactic sections of the Puranas on yoga, um, which feature a range of different methods of yoga um, including the sort of uh, split between karma, bhakti, and raja yoga, for example. Um, there are sections that talk specifically about Shiva yoga, the, the yoga of Shiva. But in mo- many, if not most, of the major Puranas, including the Vishnu Purana, the Agni Purana, the Vayu Purana, the Kurma Purana, the Linga Purana, and Bhagavata Purana, you see yoga integrated into the Ashtanga yoga or eight limbed framework, which is most often associated with Patanjali, but there's no mention of Patanjali explicitly within these passages, but nonetheless, a kind of integration of yoga into an eight limbed paradigm that draws together, not only a kind of classical framework of yoga, but integrates different sectarian orientations. So a Vaishnava might, you know, practice dhyana or meditation on Vishnu or Shaiva on Shiva, um, as well as integrating what were probably emergent variations on asana and pranayama practice. And then I think very importantly, integrating together a kind of sectarian devotion, you know, uh, someone who's reading the Shiva or Linga Purana is typically going to be a Shaiva devotee but they're also going to learn the Sankhya system of yoga philosophy. But ultimately it's all subsumed in many cases under a larger Vedantic banner. So we see a willingness to kind of see sectarian identity as well as these different philosophical systems as all able to be reconciled into one larger yogic frame. And I think in many respects, that is a foundation upon which many of the modern representations of yoga are built. So for example, when I look at BKS Iyengar's Light on Yoga, and the way that he uses the Ashtanga yoga paradigm or eight limb paradigm in Light on Yoga to frame the history and philosophy of yoga, I don't think that's a novel approach. In fact, I think you see that quite evident within the Puranic literature. So he's not innovating as much as he's representing a kind of traditional way of thinking about and framing yoga. So there's a lot to be said, I think, about the Pranic materials. And I hope, you know, one hope I would have is that this might spark others' interests in looking more deeply at that issue.
1: Well, it was a fascinating chapter, maybe to my surprise, it was a chapter, a chapter five of Stuart's book is uh, Hindu epic, Puranic and Scholastic representations of yoga. I believe in your talk at the OCHS, you were talking about elements of the Shiva Purana, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. but, yeah, but, no, but uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, the the, the the Puranas. I mean, there's so much there yet to be mined, and we're we're I think just now um, getting over the hangover of the slicing and dicing and historicism and the the sort of um, dismissing of them as sort of haphazard or patchwork or Brahmanical conceits. We're finally over that hangover, and now we can. Part of the work that I do is to to develop sort of strategies for how to deal with texts like the Puranas that are that are are. are, are um, uh, understandably unwieldy for scholarship because they're such patchwork quilts, yeah? Yes. Um, I couldn't agree
0: more and the Shiva Purana, which I had a project on recently um, and presented at the World Sanskrit Conference about, you know, some people argue that the these Shiva Purana and its sort of modern recension is a kind of hybridized text and, you know, should be thought of as a relatively sort of recent patchwork invention, though parts of it may go back, you know, to a considerably early date. But, but you know, reading through it, you, you know, it, one sees that there are different strata of texts being represented there, but they each, each part has, you know, gives you a lens into a particular often sectarian world or particular philosophical view. And one of the things I I love about the way in which the pranas deal with the Ashtanga Yoga is, unlike the more sort of let's say, elite commentarial literature, the pranas have more of an eye to the kind of practicalities of life and how Ashtanga Yoga is to be instantiated within a kind of living. Tradition, so it's not this sort of abstract entity out there, as much as it is a more kind of uh, discussion and description of how yoga is to be practiced by people in whatever situation they find themselves in the world. So it's a little bit more attuned to a kind of social and cultural context, I think, than than you see within the elite literature.
1: I think that's. That is core to the the, the function and the usage of the Puranas. Um, um, um. Uh, to my mind, the 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 various layers when you're looking at a Purana. Um, like to, the, 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 this is Hinduism, right? So, the, the cultural software of Hinduism, the Puranas, in many ways, are the most up-to-date version of that software. Where elements of the software may be ancient, yes, of course, and foundational, but but culture it's dynamic. the The, the Puranas um, they they celebrate dynamism. They, they the polyphony of the Puranas is the polyphony of Hinduism. That's why it's this made-up word of everything else that we call Hinduism, because it is everything else, and there is no elegant way. Uh, if, you, if you squint the right way and the sun's shining, you may see the tapestry one moment and then see the jungle the next moment. But nevertheless, um, the, the very, the, for, for the very same reasons that the Puranas are unwieldy uh, as objects of Western scholarship are the very same reasons that make them emblematic of what we call Hinduism, equally unwieldy to Western scholarship. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.
0: I, I, I appreciate that very much. And, and I, you know, I, I think there's a lot more to be learned on the topic of yoga within the context of the Puranas. I think the, you'd mentioned earlier, the epics and, you know, one of the things I was really trying to do in the kind of, you know, limited amount of space I have within this text to, to talk about the epics is to, you know, to some extent, you know, uh, bring a, such a wealth of data into a kind of snapshot focus, which is tricky because you lose many of these, you know, complicating details in that process. So, you know, balancing, um, you know, providing a kind of coherent snapshot that's going to be useful for a reader, especially one who wants to kind of go deeper into this um, and not sort of, you know, overly sanitizing it or, you know, overly ov- sort of overly um, reifying one particular reading or interpretation of those texts was, was very important. Um, I've always found that the, or let me put it this way, when in the context of the classroom, we're talking about the the role of yoga in the epics and Puranas. I've always wanted to have at least a kind of capsule summary for the students to, to work through so that in a relatively short period of time, they'd at least get the essentials of these stories in order to have a kind of foundation for understanding you know, why yoga is expressed in the way it is in the Gita, for example. But the, the challenge then is to provide that kind of capsule narrative without closing off a lot of the other important elements of the story. And so with respect to the epics, I've tr- tried to provide these kind of core narratives, linking them to the kind of important discourses about yoga within those texts um, and then, you know, amply footnoting it. So if people want to go deeper on any element or aspect of this, they'll have the opportunity to do so. And I think similarly with the pranic materials, I mean, it's such a vast, vast amount of material that there is a danger that, you know, presenting five pages about it is going to give the reader the impression that it's considerably more homogeneous than it actually is. Um, and so as with much of the book, I'm amply noting different sources to refer to um, in order for the reader to go deeper and see more of that complexity um, if if they want to. Well, so you know. it's it's a balancing act.
1: Yes. And and good books are beginnings, yeah, more than endings. <laughs> Um, And and with the Puranas, I mean, I find myself teaching on the Puranas all the time and and, um, presenting interpretations of them. Um, And I think at the outset, it it is to be known or to be declared, (laughs) to be clarified that um, uh, um, these are textured texts uh, that have served various functions over centuries, if not millennia. And so we are we are using them for a purpose in this time where we can glean a little bit about the world behind the text a little bit, uh, next to nothing. And here's the world within the text and how to make sense of that. And here's one way to make sense of that. Or, you know, this is, I think the, 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 the guiding principle is that there is no one way to interpret a rich narrative because it's doing so many things and it'll continue doing stuff for subsequent ages based on how it hits, um, um, um future readers. There's this, um, I was teaching this course, uh, oh, what was it? My goodness, my brain today. Yoga and Hindu mythology. It was at Yogi Studies, Sepal's platform. Fantastic mm-hmm. platform. I had a fantastic experience. Great students. Couldn't believe so many people were interested in learning about <laughs> Hindu mythology. Nevertheless, um, I decided to bring up a story that came to mind that I wanted to fold into to, to the text to teach something about yoga. And uh, I knew when I was designing the course and I, want to, I really want to talk about this ancient rivalry between uh, uh, Vasishta and Vishwamitra. this, <laughs> between these two sages, and, and, and to me, one is sort of Brahmanical, inner spiritual power, and the other is, you know, royal, kingly, outer chhatriya power, because, you know, um, 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 Vishvamitra is the only um, uh, uh, Chhatriya who ever actually becomes a Raman through through through. through through extraordinary effort. Um, <laughs> I just remember when I was uh, looking at the Valmiki Ramayana for my master's research, this must have been 2008-ish. The story stayed with me. I couldn't remember the details, but I like have to go back to the story because there's so much juice there. I look into the text and basically Vishwamitra steals Vasishya's cow. <laughs> right? This is this Romanical image of, you know, the, the, the butter, the ghee, you know the um, the passive ahimsa this this visage of of monocle power and and the cow runs back to Vishwa, to Vasika and says what well, have I wronged you in some way I'm so sad why are you getting rid of me I thought it was good and, and um, uh, says no 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 lovely cow I think in this iteration it's uh, a uh, lovely shabbalah I, I, you're being taken from me, this Kshatriya, he's a king, he's taking you from me, I'm powerless, what can I do? Mm. And she said, you know, the power of Kshatriya is no power at all. It's the Brahmana who has true power. <laughs> and I thought I was going to, to to argue that they were talking about yogic power. And I thought, you know, this may be a stretch. But then a few passages later, <laughs> Vishwamitra comes back with an army, and uh, conquers vicious forces, and Vasishya then says to to, to, to the cow, uh, "Produce more forces through your yogic power." And literally uses the word yogic. Huh. I thought this is so good, right? And it's there. It's there. There's so much there. It's not in sutra form, but this is why this is why these narratives are the tissues of Hindu culture. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and. You know, I love that story for a number of reasons, one of them being that as I went through the material for the book, one of the things I I tried to be as conscientious about as possible was getting to primary sources when, say, I read a secondary author who said that such and such passage talks about the practice of yoga, actually go to that passage and take a look at it myself. And it was it's interesting how many cases people talk about a particular passage being about yoga. But if you actually go and read the passage itself, there's no mention of yoga. The term yoga doesn't appear, or the term yogi or yogin doesn't appear. But then there are other contexts where perhaps you don't expect it to even appear, and there it is. Um, and and you know, one you know, one example of of that, you know, I found was the pervasive use of the term yogi or yogin within within Buddhist literature, especially in the in the classical era. And again, you know, there's quite a bit of debate over sort of who's using this term first. Um, and you know, and there are certain arguments, for example, to say Patanjali was borrowing heavily from Buddhist and potentially also Jean um, thinking when he's put together the, the yoga sutra. Nonetheless, I think there was perhaps some response going on in the Buddhist and Jain side to really adopting rubric that was developing within the Hindu tradition as well. But my larger point being, to get back to the, the, the larger point, that it's interesting how in some cases you know passages are, are referred to as yoga because they have elements which relate to the theory and practice of yoga and others where yoga is just clearly the rubric and language that's being used. Um, And again, I I think if I could rewrite that chapter on um, yoga in the Hindu epic and Puranic context, I would probably spend a bit more time talking about the concept of yoga bala, this idea that there's certain powers of yoga or there's a power of yoga that sages and gods possess.
1: That's all right. I'm glad you saved something for our co-authored article. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Perhaps.
1: <laughs> you never know. Stranger things have happened. Um, what do you most hope folks would take away from this book? Like what's the, the you know, what's the, the takeaway?
0: You know, I re- I've really conceived of this project as having a kind of set of different purposes, depending upon the different audiences. And so, you know, I would hope that, you know, whoever the reader is, they'll find it fascinating and a kind of engaging work that will sort of pull them along. um, And, you know, as a kind of unfolding. Um, But for, you know, for a larger practitioner audience, you know, I would really hope that this would bring a kind of larger contextual understanding of the history and philosophy of yoga and not only the kind of inner, you know, dynamics of practice. I mean, I I would hope someone would come out of this book really understanding the key concepts that have informed yoga practice throughout its history, but also it's kind of social cultural context, you know, the ways in which issues like politics and economics you know, gender and sexuality and other things come into play in the picture that would inform their perspective on their own practice and maybe open their eyes to elements of the contemporary yoga sort of scene and phenomenon that they hadn't seen before. Um, For, you know, for the more scholarly crowd, um, you know, I would hope that this would serve as a resource for, say, you know, upper- Division undergraduates or graduate students who really want to get at least one kind of larger narrative of this coherent narrative to kind of build upon. And for scholars, I hope, you know, it provokes some discussion on a number of really, really important theoretical fronts within the contemporary study of yoga. I mean, it's given me an opportunity to kind of showcase many of what I see as my key theoretical insights. Um, But I've done it in a way that doesn't spend a lot of time saying Scholar X is arguing with Scholar Y, etc. If you want that level, you really have to go to the notes, in part because I wanted something that was, you know, coherent and accessible, while at the same time is undergirded by this sort of framework of theory. I will say there are a few things that really came out of the larger arc of the work for me. One is, you know, the importance of the, the Hindu and especially Vedic roots of yoga really came through to me. Actually, we we're just talking about the distinction between the, the brahmana or priestly class and the kshatriya or warrior class. You know, the importance of military and martial arts as an element of yogic theory and practice um, and the kind of interface between yogic and uh that kind of military work, the importance of mantra, um, the importance of aoshadi, of herbs, in psychoactive substances as not necessarily just a kind of accessory out there, but as a kind of critical component of the development of of yogic practices and disciplines. Um, So that's a lot already, but in What I'm really trying to get at is hopefully readers coming from a variety of different places will get you know things that are relevant and useful for them in in whatever capacity they're entering this conversation.
1: Fascinating. Is there anything else about the book you um, had hoped we would highlight in our conversation you'd like to talk about?
0: No I I think I think we were pretty comprehensive uh, Raj. And I really appreciate having the opportunity to talk about it.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. This is a labor of love. Um, and, uh, among many functions uh, of this podcast is, um, lockdown sanity for listeners and the host alike. And <laughs> at yeah, times lockdown insanity. Um, and in many ways, perhaps um, this is a this is a, a needed uh, indulgence for an extrovert who happens to be a textual scholar of Sanskrit narrative. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I didn't study people, but anyhow, um, no, it's been lots of fun. Uh, before you we close, uh, why don't you tell folks what you're working on now?
0: Yes, yeah, so I've I've got several projects that I'm working on right now. Um, one of them is, is a project linking religion and technology, and in particular, looking at the ways in which this dynamic between, um, let's say, uh, the attainment of power and spiritual, if not ethical, transformation can be applied to emergent technologies of human augmentation or human enhancement. And in that, I'm really looking at, among other things, the interface between certain contemplative technologies, um, the practices of yoga and meditation, and psychedelics within the contemporary context. So that's one of the key projects I'm working on. Um, I also have some other much more yoga-specific work being done. Um, I'm in the process of completing a paper that looks at the notions of Nirguna and Saguna uh, Ishvara, uh, the idea of either a God who has form or God who is formless, as might be um, intimated within the context of the uh, Patanjala yoga system. And um, and a few other things that are sort of side hustles that I'm working on that may become bigger projects. Um, One of them being a book comparing. the ashtanga yoga system with the ashtanga or ashtangika marga the eight fold uh, framework within the buddhist tradition so a lot a lot to go with there
1: so you're bored essentially <laughs> you're, you're a busy boy
0: oh, i like the opposite i've got so much to work on it's always a challenge to decide you know where to put my you know where my energies most
1: yes exactly you're you you're busy? yeah you're a busy boy you make me look lazy that's great um <laughs> great okay so we'll close for today um just to stay on after i close sure. so for those of you listening we have been speaking with dr Stuart ray sarbacher associate professor at the school of history philosophy and religion at oregon state university we've been talking about a fantastic book which officially comes out new year's day 2021 a new beginning for all of us called tracing the path of yoga the history and philosophy of indian mind body discipline sunni press 2021 thank you for appearing on the podcast
0: been my pleasure, Raj. Thanks for having me.
1: And for those of you listening, uh, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating this crazy thing called yoga.